0: Good evening everyone. Lovely to have you with us at church tonight. Is it lovely to be here? Yeah, it is. And there's so much exciting things happening. I just love hearing those reports of of people exploring faith through our playtimes during the week, young people giving to their their lives to the Lord. It seems like every second week this term, like God is doing amazing things in answering our prayers. And as charity is just prayed into, that we get to now step into this place in our church calendar where we start to think about and deliberately carve out time uh, to reflect on the nature of Easter. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be tracking through a series called The Voices of Easter. And the idea behind Behind this series is simply that often events are really well captured by a particular phrase that is spoken in the midst of those events. So I'll throw one out and see if it makes any sense. Houston, we have a problem here. Does anyone remember that? No, you probably don't because you're all about 30. You know, like for those... Well, I don't remember either, to be honest. I'm not even that old. Um, But, you know, there's that sense where sometimes events can just be perfectly captured by a phrase. For those of us who are in Sydney during the Sydney Olympics, the winner is Sydney It's just this great phrase that, like, it just takes me back. You don't need to say the Sydney Olympics. You just say the phrase and it perfectly captures, for me, the excitement that I felt and joined with the rest of Australians as we looked forward to hosting the Olympic Games and particularly the excitement I had for not needing to study anymore because I could watch television instead of my HSC year. I still did okay, but there we go. But these phrases that sometimes perfectly capture events and take us back to those events, evoking all the emotions of those events. But when the event is really significant, some of those phrases that best capture those events are filled with meaning. And not just meaning that captures the meaning and the significance of the event, but causes us to think about what it means for us today. So a great example of this would be four simple words, I have a dream. You think of Martin Luther King's beginning of that great speech, and it takes you back and you think through about his passion and his commitment to racial inclusion and social justice. You think not just of an event where he spoke at a rally, but you think of an entire movement. And even though the decades have gone on since that point, I hear that and the meaning carries to me today. And I have to evaluate my own heart and my own attitudes. How am I treating those of different racial backgrounds in my own life today? So as we turn our attention to the events surrounding Easter, it should not surprise us that there are phrases uttered in the course of those events two millennia ago which capture perfectly the heart and the significance of those events The events that are at the very centre of our faith. The very centre of what we believe the most important events of all human history. And those phrases, these voices of Easter, continue to resound with meaning today. For us gathered here, but also for all those around our world. So the encouragement is today, Friday, Sunday and the Sunday after. To lean in and to listen afresh as we consider these voices of Easter and what they mean for us today. We're going to start with the pronouncement of the crowd who cried out for
1: Jesus' blood. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time he had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then? With Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
0: If like me, that's a really familiar passage to you. You've probably grown up reading that or hearing that spoken about every Easter, that you've been in church or been connected into church. And yet it doesn't seem to diminish just how confronting that passage is, does it? Every time I read it, every time I hear it being read every Easter, I'm confronted. This is the Jesus that I love. This is the Jesus that I worship. This is the Jesus who has saved me. And here is his people, the people that he has come to save crying out for his crucifixion. I don't know if you've ever been in a a massive stadium watching a, a sporting event, whether that's basketball or football or whatever it is, and that chant of defense goes up around. Defense, defense, defense. The idea that in a crowd context, there is this kind of uproar that bubbles up. Crucify him, crucify him. And it's made even more confronting knowing that Jesus' heart is for them, right? He's come to save them. Even on the cross, he will proclaim from that place that they have sentenced him to, his forgiveness over them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And to hear them utter this phrase, his blood be upon me, it's just crazy, isn't it? Well, we read here and we read in the other Gospels. Pilate interviews Jesus. And a little recap if you uh, haven't read the story uh, for a while. Uh, the, n- the night before, Jesus has been um, betrayed by one of his key 12 followers to, over to the Sanhedrin. He's been arrested, and there's been this absolute mockery of a trial uh, overnight. They've got these false witnesses that can't agree on anything. It's pretty hard to prove he's done anything wrong because he's going around like healing people, right? It's hardly criminal activities. But they hear something that sounds enough. To to them like blasphemy, that, they, that they're done. And so they want to bring him to the Roman authority in the region, that's Pilate, because Pilate has the power and the authority to actually sentence someone to death in the region. And so that's where we picked up in, in verse 11. So meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And so Pilate interviews him, and we read in another gospel that he then sends him up the chain, up to Herod, and Herod sends him back. And neither of these men in positions of power can find anything guilty or, or anything to condemn in Jesus. He's not a threat to them and their estate. Establishment. He's not criminal, he is an innocent man. In fact, Pilate's wife, we read in verse 19, has this dream that affirms that same conclusion that Pilate has drawn. It's like the very supernatural realm are declaring, even through dreams, that Jesus is in fact blameless, that he is innocent, that he is not deserving of death. And she sends this message to Pilate while he's in the seat of judgment and he foolishly never listens to he doesn't listen to his wife, which is, as we all know, very, very bad form uh, for husbands. Always listen to your wives, gents. And so we read that once that in verse 24, once Pilate realized that this, this course has to play out because the crowd are not going to let it go. And he's responsible for maintaining the peace uh, in this part of the world that Rome has sent him to. He washes his hands in front of the crowd. And there is in this, perhaps, just a, a little bit of contempt shown for the Jewish people, uh, knowing their custom surrounding ceremonial washing. But if you were there watching this act of him washing his hands, his intent would be unmistakable, wouldn't it? You know exactly what he was trying to do and what it was that he was communicating. Pilate washing his hands signals visibly, publicly, clearly that as far as he is concerned, he is innocent of this man's blood. Innocent of this man's blood. And so he looks at the crowd gathered and he says, it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility. Now, I don't know if you've ever been driving with someone somewhere, and you disagreed on the route to be taken to said destination. Anyone had that experience? Or you're all following the same Siri-Google Maps pathway. But back in the day, where people used to rely on what they knew of the streets or those old things called street directories, there used to always be these little kind of differences of opinion in the car, and someone would be like, no, you need to take this left and then that right, and then you need to go down Great Western Highway, and that's the fastest way to get to the dinner party that we... You know, we're we're touch-and-go, this is the way we need to go. And someone would be like, no, 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 I know all these back streets and this. This other way, and it's for sure, it's way quicker. You can only go one way, right? You're in one car. And so there's this disagreement, and at some point, someone has to put up their hands and say, fine, but we'll go your way, but if it takes longer and we're late, it's your responsibility and you need to say sorry to the host. And at that point, the person, usually the person driving, says, fine, it's on me. And in that moment, what they do is they take on responsibility for the decision and the responsibility for the course of action that they're about to go on. Uh, And part of that means also accepting the consequences of the decision that they've just won. Uh, That if they're late, they need to apologise to the host and say that it's their fault. And for all of the rest of the time that those people are ever in the car together, if they have a disagreement about which way to go, the other person is allowed to bring it up. Pretty sure that's how marriage works, right? little silly example, but in those moments, you know what it is to actually take responsibility onto yourself, take personal ownership of a decision, and actually accept the consequences of it. And so one of the craziest things about this phrase is that's exactly what the crowd do in Jerusalem at this. I'm innocent of this man's blood, Pilate says, it is your responsibility, and they say this, it is, his blood is on us, and it's on our children, I really like to do sermons that don't have three points, but this has three points. The intended meaning. Their intended meaning here is to take responsibility for the sentencing of Jesus to death. This is their intended meaning. Not only to take on responsibility for what Pilate will pronounce as a sentence on Jesus, but then to have that carried through at Golgotha on the cross. And then scarily to take on themselves the consequences of that action, not only for them, but through the generations and through their generations children. This is a very confronting and uncomfortable thing for anyone to be saying about the death of another human being, particularly when that human being is the Messiah, is the Son of God, is the one who comes to save us. But there is, point two, a deeper meaning in this as well. One that they didn't intend to mean, but one which the scriptures are clear, and I think Matthew is hinting at here. His blood is on them, yes, in that sense of personal responsibility of the sentencing of Jesus, but his blood is upon them at a much deeper level, that Jesus will carry their sins on his shoulders to the cross. And here we're reminded of that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 that we read around this time of year. As God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks of the one who is to come, who will save his people, he prophesies that that man will take up our pain, that he will bear our suffering. He will be pierced for our transgression. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is a deeper meaning that the crowd do not quite yet understand, that Jesus goes to the cross for them and because of them, But not because they let out a chant in a courtyard to a weak-willed governor. But Jesus will go to the cross to make repayment for their sin. Jesus will open up the door that they might be restored to right relationship with God. And we sing this in in that great song, How Deep the Father's Love. It was my sins that held him there. And their story is our story, isn't it not? The New Testament picks up this same theme. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, speaking of Jesus. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Romans 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was reading a commentator on Matthew chapter 27 in the week, and he made the point that ever since that earliest time, that first instance, Pilates, the Romans, people all throughout the world, even today, still try and wash their hands of responsibility of the blood of Jesus. And yet the scriptures proclaim very clearly that Christ suffered in our place. There's two intense quotes, one by C.J. Mahoney. Unless you see yourself standing there with a shrieking crowd, you don't really understand the nature and the depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. And Mr. Stott, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. I actually think this is as uncomfortable and as confronting as it is, something that's really important for us to grab hold of. We are a people saved by grace, we are righteous, we are saints, that does not diminish this. But we need to understand and we need to take hold the depths of our own rebellion and the cost of our redemption. So my brother is eight years younger than me, who had a sister in between, but there's a decent gap between us. And I was showing off my math skills this morning, and I said, when I was 16, that meant that he was eight, not bad. When I was 12, that meant he was four, Um, and what that meant was that often I got the chance to go to playgrounds with him and with mum and watch kids his age interact with each other without that little bit of vantage point of being a bit older. So instead of going and playing with the other kids, because I was, I was eight years older, I didn't, I didn't care about four-year-olds when I was 12, but I got to see them interact with each other. And I remember this one example where we went down to the park, because I was hanging out with mum, and there were these two kids that were involved in an incident. My brother wasn't one of them, so don't worry about it. Uh, but it was, was this boy and this, and this girl, and this boy was just one of those, you know how some boys are just like jerks, uh, can we? Say that. I'm sure they're very nice people and they'll grow up to be lovely human beings. But, but when you're a kid, sometimes they do really jerky things. And this kid pushed this girl around and he said something really hurtful and really mean. And he didn't quite hear and didn't quite capture what it was that he said to this girl. But you saw the impact. You, you saw the, the bottom lip quaver and the eyes filled with water a bit and your heart goes out to her. Uh, and she, she runs off to find her mum to get, to get solace and to get, get a hug, no doubt. Anyways, a little bit of time went by, I didn't think of anything of it, until I saw her and her mum come walking towards this young boy. Now, I was interested, and I was listening, because I'm like, here we go, this guy is going to get an absolute talking too. But the mum comes up to the boy and says, excuse me, I think you need to hear what my daughter has to say to you. And she just opened up and she said, you know what, what you did really hurt me, but I forgive you. And the little boy didn't know what to do with that. Okay, thank you, and then went off to play. In that moment, the girl's forgiveness was completely sincere and it was completely genuine, wasn't it? And it was completely given. That boy stood, for lack of a better word, completely forgiven and restored to right relationship with that girl. But because he didn't seem to have any kind of self-awareness of the depth of his hurt towards this girl, he also missed experiencing the depths of her forgiveness and the relief that that would have brought him when he was forgiven. And no doubt that would have also made him feel uh, even more positively towards the girl. Making sense? Don't need to explain that one. You see, for me, some of the figures in our Bible that have the greatest and deepest, richest intimacy with God are those who also show this great, deep awareness of their own sinfulness and the distance and the hurt that that causes relationally with God when they act those ways. So King David, classic example, is called A Man After God's Own Heart. And we sing half of his songs. You know, we we plagiarise them from the Psalms when we put them to modern music. He's guy like, who loved God. And yet we read in Psalm 51, this, the great psalm of confession, this sense of his utterness understanding of his own sinfulness as he cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, you know the what it is. And he says, surely I'm sinful from from the time my mother conceived me. It's this thorough understanding of his own sinfulness that gives rise to this deep love and affection for Yahweh, his covenant creator God, who does not abandon him despite his sinfulness. I see the same thing in the Apostle Paul. You read his books. He is relentless about preaching grace and he loves Jesus. There's no doubt about it. But when he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to die sinners, of whom I am the worst. He had this deep sense of his own sinfulness. The song wasn't written then, but I think Paul would be the kind of guy that would sing that with tears in his eyes. It was my sin that held him there. And understanding the depths of his sinfulness understanding the cost of his redemption. It causes him, I think, to have such a wonderful experience of God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's presence in his life. And he gave his life for the proclamation of that truth around the known world at the time. And so tonight I want us to take hold of that in some way, not just just to hear it, maybe you've heard it lots of times but to actually take hold of it. And to help us do this, I'm going to facilitate a little bit of time where we've actually got a a physical object. So I've actually got some nails. Now, Valdi is away, but I'm going to do a WHS disclaimer anyway. (laughs) These are real nails, and I didn't spend hours blunting them. So if you are unable to hold these without harming the people around you, please don't take one. But far more seriously than that, my pastoral disclaimer is that I don't want this to be a gimmick. So if you don't want to enter into this, we're going to consider the weight of our personal responsibility that Jesus was hung on the cross. So if that's going to be a gimmick to you, feel free to to not take one and just pass it through. Also, I don't want you to ever feel like you're being manipulated in this place. Everyone is voluntarily and freely able to enter into everything we do, from worship to listening to the Word to prayer to all that kind of stuff. And that includes exercises like this. So if you feel that, oh, I'm uncomfortable, he's trying to make me do something, don't take one. And if you know that this is going to take you to a bad place, just personally in your own, where you're up to in your own spiritual life, please don't participate in this either. And I assure you, the lights, the lights are down. No one's paying attention to who's taking nails and who's not. So that's, that's the pastoral. Disclaimer out of the way. And so, what I want us to do is, I actually want us to hold this in our hand, this nail in our hand. I actually want you to hold it there if that's okay, probably for the rest of the message. And then, a little bit after the message, you'll have a chance to do something with it over communion um, as well. And to actually just think on that. You see, for me, every year around this time in the lead up to Easter, I experience, well, I feel something and I don't go chasing it, it's not faked and been happening for many years now, then about a week and a half, two weeks out from Good Friday, I just start to, like, I actually just start to feel, to feel the weightiness of it, feel the solemnness of it, the sorrow of it, the sacredness of it. And I've experienced this as God's kindness to me, to not miss the significance that it was my sins that held him there. So just for 10, 20 seconds now, I invite you to hold that in your palm, and just think on that. For me, when I take hold of this, really take hold of this, my personal responsibility for Jesus on the cross, I receive this as God's kindness to me because it makes me profoundly aware of my need for grace. It humbles me and protects me from any sense of self-righteousness or arrogance like we read in Jesus' story of the guy who goes up into the temple and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like sinners. It frees me from the, uh, even the ability to judge other people because I recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. When I actually take hold of this and I believe it, I don't take sin lightly in my own life. When I take hold of this, it safeguards me against religion. I understand it's not about do better, try harder, be at this place, say the right things, speak to the right people, that it's about grace and grace alone. And when I take hold of this, I'm actually filled not with guilt and condemnation but joy and hope and love because I know that in the same breath his blood be upon us is also a prophetic gospel proclamation that the crowd had no idea they were making. This is point three if you're a note taker. This is the double meaning or the double entendre. The people cry out, his blood be upon us, thinking they're just talking about the sentencing of Jesus. But in salvation history, it's Jesus taking their sins upon himself. And so then to have his blood on them also speaks of the covering that comes through his sacrifice on the cross. This is making sense. Jesus has just preempted and he's prepared his disciples for this. This is a key moment in salvation history by instituting the Lord's Supper. The, the night before, he's, he's passed the cup and he said, drink this. This is the new covenant. And it recalls the great saving act of God in the Passover all the way back in Exodus where his people were covered by the blood and God's judgment passed over them. You see, we need to understand that his blood be upon us also speaks of redemption. It speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of mercy. We are those who are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are those who are covered by the sacrifice he made on the cross once for all, dying for sins that we might know his righteousness and restored relationship with Christ. This is good news, is it not? John 3, 16, for this. Come on, you know it. Romans 5, 8, you know it. Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, you know this. The joy of heaven is in welcoming you home. It was love, not anger, that brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. So we now stand covered by the blood of Jesus in everything that that means for us and our standing before God and our experience of new life with God. And there are verses and verses all throughout the New Testament that celebrate this, that declare this, that pick up on the image of of blood, speaking of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Ephesians 1 verse 7 can't be any clearer, right? In him we have redemption through his blood. His blood be upon us. Amen. We get to experience that redemption. 1 John 1. 7. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If you really want to go deep into this and understand what Jesus does in light of the Old Testament sacrificial system, you should read the book of Hebrews as well, and Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 particularly. There's some great stuff there. How much more then will the blood of Christ, Hebrews nine fourteen, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, that we may serve the living God. Let his blood be upon us, here is the phrase that captures, in a lot of ways, the significance of the events around Good Friday in particular. The people didn't realize what they were saying. They were intending it to harm Jesus, this sentence carried out for him. But the deeper meaning was that God was moving in salvation history to bring it to its climax, where he would enter and he would lay down his life that others might know life and joy and mercy and forgiveness. And we now stand at that double meaning, that Jesus' blood covers us. So I'm going to invite uh, the band up, and we're just going to respond by that. You've still got these little things, yeah? And so what I want you to do is... Nails is probably what they are, yeah, these nails. You've still got these nails. Um, and I guess I want to speak to maybe, maybe two... Maybe where you might be at in two different ways. Um, the first is that sometimes it's really confronting to take hold of this, Yeah? We want to feel that Jesus died because the religious authorities were confronted by him and his ministry. Or we want to feel that Jesus died for that sin problem that's out there. Sometimes we need to understand that Jesus died for the sin problem that's in here. So actually to spend some time um, during this next song holding this and being in that place of it was my sin's. That held him there, and actually allowing the Holy Spirit, maybe even to convict you about something that's going on in your life at the moment. But the second thing is often, sometimes we cling to this, and we don't understand that we are covered now by the blood of Jesus. And so communion is set up for us; Um, these symbols that remind us um, that Jesus' body was broken—that's what the bread's there for—and that His blood was shed—that's what the uh, things that kind of looks like blood, the juice is is there for. Um, and that as we take this, we remember that that involves the washing and the cleansing and the forgiveness and the mercy and the restored relationship with him, that our guilt is dealt with once and for all. Any sense of judgment, condemnation, it no longer stands against us because it has been dealt with once and for all time on the cross. And we'll talk about that a whole lot more uh, on Friday. So really looking forward to seeing you there. Um, So as the band uh, sings this next song, it's a a great old song called Nothing um, But The Blood Of Jesus. Just to invite you to be in that place of reflecting, praying, thinking, journaling, whatever it is. When you're ready, actually, just to jump up with your nail, to go across to the communion table and place it there because Jesus has dealt with it. To take that bread, to take that juice, symbols of his divine mercy his eternal love take them back to your seat and just eat and drink with thankful and glad hearts yeah there is a gluten-free option there rip a chunk of the bread pour some juice or take a thimble whatever your preference is i'm going to pray for us allow god to minister to us in this time yeah Jesus, I can't even begin to imagine what you must have felt as you hear this cry escape the lips of the people you've come to save. But I thank you. I thank you that because of your great love for us, you who are rich in mercy, see this through and you take our sins upon yourself you would allow you, the author and creator of life to surrender to nails, pierce through your wrists and ankles so that we might be forgiven in this time in this place tonight, Father I just ask the presence of your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, move in our lives. Convict us, inspire us, encourage us with whatever it is that we need in this moment. To truly dwell on and dwell in the sacrifice that you made for us. And my hope and my prayer, Lord, for everyone gathered, myself included, is that this isn't just a story that we've heard growing up. God, that you would be our personal Saviour, that you would be our personal Lord, that we would be so moved by what you have done and what that means for us today, that we would go from this place with joy singing in our hearts, hope being proclaimed from our lips, understanding the depths of what our redemption cost, that we might live in an extravagant experience of what that grace means for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit.